You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Can you live your whole life at zero? Can you live your entire life in the exact point between comfort and discomfort? You can in this device. My father designed it that way. Don't ask me why. If I knew the answer to that, I would know a whole lot of other things too. Things like why he left, where he is, what he's doing, when he's coming back, if he's coming back. Where has he been all these years? I'm guessing that's where he is now. I don't miss him anymore. Most of the time, anyway. I want to. I wish I could, but unfortunately, it's true. Time does heal. It will do so whether you like it or not, and there's nothing anyone can do about it. If you're not careful, time will take away everything that ever hurt you, everything you have ever lost, and replace it with knowledge. Time is a machine. It will convert your pain into experience. Raw data will be compiled, will be translated into a more comprehensible language. The individual events of your life will be transmuted into another substance called memory. and the mechanism, something will be lost, and you will never be able to reverse it. You will never again have the original moment back in its uncategorized, pre-processed state. It will force you to move on, and you will not have a choice in the matter. Charles Yu is the author of the short story collection Third Class Superhero. His first novel is How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. Thank you for joining me, Charles. Thank you for having me. Charles, this is a very remarkable book, and it's propelled by the most unique prose style that I've almost ever read, and I've never read any prose style that's quite like this. It is at once geekily and engagingly scientific, and yet it's emotional and nostalgic and powerful. Talk about just creating the prose space for your book to unfold in. Well, I, I think you hit on it in, in, the, in the word prose space. I mean, that's exactly what I was trying to do. Um, I, the book I was really thinking about when um, I was writing this was Nicholson Baker's The Mezzanine, which is a book that takes place within a span of time um, that it takes for the the narrator to go up one floor in an escalator from the ground floor to the mezzanine and it's a kind of um it's a it's a meditative book that that takes place almost completely inside this guy's head and in this kind of feeling of being stuck between levels and i that that may not sound too too you know close to what i what i've written here but um, I did want to create a kind of space where this guy Charles Yu is is also stuck um, in time, as it were, and and in space and time, and and is in and in the course of the story, you know, he you find out he he, he gets stuck in in uh, especially sort of bad way because he ends up in a time loop of his own making. One of the things I think that's uh, really beautiful uh, about this book is the it's the way you enjoy language. And you introduced me for, to a word, I have to admit, I confess I had to look it up, but I looked it up right at the beginning, and this is a word called uh, diegetic? 
diegetic, I diegetic. think, but I, I don't, uh, maybe. Well, <laughs> let's guesses. go with that. Well, we'll go with yours and, and explain what die, diegetic is and how important this is to the narrative, as it were. Okay. Well, I, and I'll try, and I, hopefully I'm not botching it. Since you looked it up probably more recently than I did, then maybe you can correct me. But I, I was thinking of it as diegetic in the sense of uh, a diegesis is a, is, a, is a narrated story, basically, or a space where... Um, story takes place. The the context I had first heard the term was extra diegetic music. When, for instance, when you're watching a movie, the soundtrack is usually extra diegetic. It's not taking place within the world of the story. It's laid on top of it, and the audience understands that. Although occasionally you'll have, of course, music that is, I guess, intra diegetic. It's it's a guy playing the guitar, say, at a restaurant inside the story. So I guess diegetic in that sense is um, is a kind of uh, is meant to, to convey this idea of a story space. But I was also using it, um, I think it's also meant to contrast with something that's mimetic. Whereas, so so mimetic stories are, are I think, those that are sort of acted. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're telling a story mimetically, then it would be, um, it'd be sort of a, a story that's, that's shown rather than told. Whereas diegetic stories, I think, are told rather than shown. So th- that's all a very lo- sort of long-winded way of saying that um, this is a supposed to be the, the stories, I, you know, I'm hoping to explore how a narrator, um, I'm sorry, can I, can I start over? That was just no, too, I think, too much. I, I think, no, I think what you're saying is right, that this is a, a, a story about how we define ourselves. Right. Using stories, am, am I correct? That's that's exactly right. And so, so diegetic was was supposed to to refer to a guy who's self consciously in a story world. You know, mm-hmm. the world itself is aware of its fictional status, and all of the characters are you know self aware of their science fictional sort of nature. And um, so, yeah, that I better stop. <laughs> no. Well, one of the thing that's one of the joys of this book is the way it plays with language, the way that that you describe our lives in terms of grammar, and it brings us back to the fact that we define ourselves with language. And, and I love some of the stuff, the, the grammar of time, how, how you can kill your own future. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I, I think I was interested in, um, like you said, how language itself encodes um, t- uh, time. It's a language is a intrinsically temporal object. I never thought about it that way. Now that's now that's a really that's so fascinating. And, and talk about just creating the prose style. Did you just did this prose style spring forth from your brow like the uh, Poseidon from the brow of Zeus or did this take a while to get down? Uh, I think half of it is probably um, the the particular, you know, s- smoothie of of things that I've read, you know, both in my distant past and recently mm-hmm. that are all kind of just blended up in there. But it did it did feel like and this is really what drove me to keep writing this thing even when especially in the earlier drafts it didn't feel like a story yet. Mm-hmm. Um it did feel like this the prose was starting to have a kind of energy to it. That that's really what I what I was looking for, and and I think w- when that happened was um, 
when I took this kind of sci-fi time travel language and I put it up next to this sort of emotional sort of um, family story kind of language and found that when they interacted, they produced this kind of weird um, third substance, which sounds at times like it's really technical, but what it's technical about is, is, is I think, hopefully, about how people tell stories about their own lives. It, it sort of resulted in, in weird sort of combinations of words that would be half um, made up and then half um, sort of, uh, I don't know, I guess half very relevant to the universe I was trying to create. Well, this is such a fascinating universe. Um, and, and I think it's, it. as I read this, I just, I'm thinking, can he pull this off? Can he make me believe in this world? And you do. And I think the core of that is the emotional core of the story, which is the father-son relationship, which is just fraught at times with such poignancy. It, it will practically bring any man who has a father and who's bottomed something out of the back of a comic book to, to the verge of tears. <laughs> so talk That's about those kind of uh, creating those kind of emotional moments and pairing them and running them through this uh, temporal uh, neologisms that you, <laughs> right. that you spout at a really rather remarkable rate. Yeah, well, thanks. I think, maybe, maybe not. Maybe. Good or bad, right? <laughs> it's good. <laughs> uh, you know, some of it just happens by necessity because when I try to write the straight father-son story just in a sort of flat way, it felt, it felt flat. I couldn't feel like I was getting any charge out of it myself. You know, mm -hmm. I, I wasn't finding it interesting, and I, I guess that meant that probably readers wouldn't find it interesting either. So um, I, I really was searching for like a frame, you know, a different vocabulary to talk about what are really like, you know, I hope are pretty universal emotions, you mm -hmm. know, nostalgia, regret, and um, um, of course, love, you know, father, son, just sort of the, the time they spend in the garage, that kind of um, the feeling of having of wasting time that you know that you should be spending with your loved ones. And so, so I think, uh, you know, I was really looking for a new way to talk about sort of really old subjects, I guess. Well, as a, I, I'm sorry, but I have to ask you this totally stupid and geeky question. <laughs> how many, how many millions of episodes of Doctor Who have you watched? <laughs> sorry. No, no, it's a great question. And it might surprise you that I've only watched really one and it was a, it was a special, and it wasn't really. Um, it was the one that they aired. I want to say in the summer of two thousand nine, where um, a bunch of people are in a bus, mm. and then they drive through this some kind of space time anomaly, I guess, and end up in a desert sort of world. Right, right, right. I know which one you're talking about. Okay, well, yeah. Um, so, uh, because that's one of the main places I've seen time loops. Uh, let's talk about kind of the the, the world uh, of Charles Yu, the, who the narrator, as it were, of how to live in a science fictional universe. He's got his own kind of time machine, and he has a couple of people, or, or no, well, they're not really people, are they? T Tammy, <laughs> and tell us about Tammy and Ed, who are language, yeah. essentially. Yeah, and yeah. Phil too. <laughs> I love Phil. Well, that's an interesting. But okay, I, yeah, Tammy is. Um, Charles is a time machine repairman, and uh, you know, 
because in this in this place where he lives, Minor Universe 31, there are sort of commercially rentable time machines. People often break their time machines, and so Charles has to go fix them. So he has his own um, service tech sort of unit of his own. And that, of course, like any complicated computer, has to have an operating system. And so Tammy, when you boot up the operating system in this in this model of the time machine, you can either choose between a male interface or a female one. Charles, being you know, I guess a straight male, decides that if he's going to be alone in a box, it might might as well be with with a woman who is described as sort of a sexy librarian, and um, she's also incredibly neurotic and depressed, and and just has really low self esteem for for a piece of software. Um, and so that's Charles's main companion, um, and he's also got a, a dog Ed, who was basically in a, a different story. So this is, you know, in this Universe 31, there's all kinds of different stories going on. And occasionally, characters are just sort of booted out of their own story. And that's what happened to Ed. Charles basically rescued this this lonely dog. And now he has, for a pet, he has somebody that, in a sense, doesn't really exist anymore. He does Ed doesn't exist in the story he's supposed to. So he's kind of in this quasi-existence. And... Um, and then the last is is Charles's boss Phil, who's another computer program, um, who is unaware that he's a computer program. Basically, he's run. I, you have a lot of fun in this book. It's really fun to read. It's very very funny, and it, it's certainly a brand of humor that uh, one finds in an engineering environment. Did you spend much time a- ever working in an engineering <laughs> environment? I have to ask. No, it's a good question. I uh, I spent time realizing that I wasn't cut out to be an engineer. Mm. I went to Berkeley and uh, and I took engineering classes um, as an undergrad and I quickly found out that I wasn't I didn't have what it took. <laughs> but I did you know I did get through a few quite a few math math and physics and some very sort of entry level uh, engineering and computer science classes and um, and then I think also just being at Berkeley, there were so many engineers that it was easy to feel like sort of steeped in the the language and the the exuberant geekiness of <laughs> you know of engineers. You know, mm-hmm. it's not it's almost like a you know a place where being super brainy is a form of sort of macho ness, I guess. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an interesting observation. <laughs> Now, uh, in in your universe, uh, normally when we see time travel narratives, time travel it, it's is bear, is kind of a complete MacGuffin. It, it, they go somewhere and they have the adventure. Time travel itself is not the adventure, and I think that's the big difference with your book. Time travel is the only adventure, and and talk about creating that plot and and deciding on that plot why i mean what made you decide not to just send charles back to the neanderthal era to to fight uh saber-toothed tigers right yeah, right um well i i think one constraint i think yes you're right in most time travel stories it's a it's the device or or it's the MacGuffin as you put it it's it's the black box you don't care how it gets you where do you want to go it's you tell the story after the black box transported you to some distant, exciting time. Mm-hmm. Here, I wanted to open the black box, and and I, but I didn't want to do it. Um, I didn't want to do it in a hyper technical way. I was sort of trying to 
um, create a different form of time travel, mm -hmm. one that's based on uh, grammar and, and memory and regret, one that's almost kind of a linguistic form of time travel, mm -hmm. essentially. And uh, you have a brilliant explanation of that probably through the book, which I should will never reveal. It's really, really brilliant. Uh, it, one thing I love is that your what people end up using time travel for in your universe when we see them is is to explore regret and and I think that's a really interesting emotion to to base your book around because I think that's one of at least the 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 centers of gravity for this novel yeah yeah it uh regret yes yeah yes um reg to, uh, regret it's weird. I think it's the whole thing was once you have a hammer, the, is it the whole world starts looking like a nail? And mm -hmm. it, once I had time travel in the brain, everything was about time travel. And, and or, or to be more specific, everything was temporal. I couldn't stop looking at things through that lens. And regret was one of them where I realized, well, here's this thing that if I told a straight story about some guy really regretting lost time with his father, then that's... I don't know how to make that story interesting, you know, but looking a little closer at regret, I guess, um, imagine, I guess, if there were essentially a science of regret uh, or, you know, and, and, and then I thought, well, what is regret really? It's that it's the emotion of, of wishing things had turned out differently than they really did, you know, and it's the emotion of alternate history. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. I never thought of it that way. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. Yeah. So in order to have regret, we have to have in our brains the ability to project an alternate universe. I mean, that's the geekiest possible way to say that, but it's actually true, right? I mean, mm -hmm. and then once you're kind of straying towards that direction, then you go, well, we actually have verb tenses that talk about alternate universes, right? I mean, the conditional tenses are basically about worlds that, liter you know, by definition are not the one in which the speaker is existing. Uh -huh. So those sort of you know, those sort of, I guess, equalities or, or things started to, I guess, kind of crackle and talk to each other a little bit. And that's when I started to go, i probably not smart enough to really to get all of this down, but I'm just going to let it start to seep in and, and start to play with words and see how I can suggest these ideas and hope that they're transmitted at least partially to the reader. <laughs> well, that's a fascinating idea to, to look at grammar as a form of technology and then to apply that technology to time travel. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah exactly. Yeah. Did, talk about your, your studying the tenses and, and stuff because you do that very well. You make it clear when, in here when you start slinging the tenses and slinging your kind of pseudo-scientific jargon. About half of, one of the things you do very well <clears throat> is mesh stuff that seems like must be real with stuff that is not real. Uh, talk about, you know, uh, creating that kind of sense of uh, uh, ver verisimilitude in, in the language, so, which is really, it's critical to this book. Yeah, well, I, I'm glad you said that because I did. I did really. Uh, that was important to me because you, I, I, I think verisimilitude is um, the way I try to get it. Basically, was I I would take actual abstracts from like scientific papers mm -hmm. and use them almost as a um, template and and write write you know, type them out and then basically pull out the actual substance of the science. But the 
the sort of sentence structure was important to me to keep that because I was like, I can't pass myself off as a scientist, but scientists write a certain way when they're mm -hmm. writing and it's going to sound more convincing, like you said, if, if it could actually kind of be real, even though you know this can't possibly be real because it's about a time machine that operates on regret. But those cadences, I guess, is, is I did feel like I had to get some kind of um, some, something that I wouldn't have been able to invent since obviously I haven't written scientific papers. Well, no, actually, I think you have. And, I, and in many <laughs> ways, I think this uh, there's a good deal. And there's an argument that says that this book is nonfiction. And so I'd like you to address that argument <laughs> because I think it, 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 in many ways you could say this is this is a your you know vision of of this is a definition of regret a scientific chronological definition of regret. I would uh, if I could yeah I would love to be a professor someday at a University of uh, Applied you know or the Department of of uh, Scientific Regret or Applied Science Fiction or Chronodiegetics I guess. I mean, I, I like that argument. I mean, I do, I do want to think that in some sense, not to say I'm trying to rigorously, you know, define an emotion, which is obviously different for every, you know, subjective human experience, even within a person, right? Regret doesn't mean to me what it, what it does now than maybe what it did a few years, even a few 10 years minutes ago. ago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, um, it is, I guess, um, uh, I don't know. It, it, it uh, sometimes I did feel like it, 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 it might not be um, it, it might it might be fake science, but it, it might be something that would hold true in a number of literary universes anyway, if not a physical universe. You know? Well, I think that's one of the really uh, fascinating aspects of this book as a as a literary artifact. It's really quite unique. <clears throat> And, then, and uh, I think that, you know, you're, you were talking about the mezzanine, and I think that actually does have a, a really, you know, a strong connection to that. And, and what the, you know, I'm partway through this book, and, and one word that I think is going to occur to anybody who reads this book is solipsism. So talk about that. And, and I think one of the things you do is make solipsism compelling and exciting to read about, which is a, a remarkable achievement in itself. <laughs> Well, thanks. I, I think no. I'm just kidding. I, I, well, I mean, for every you know, um, if for every Rick that thinks that, there's probably an alternate universe Rick who who hates the solipsism of the book. So, <laughs> and and that's fair. I totally. I mean, to read about a, a book about a, a guy who literally lives in this kind of interior psychological space that, you know, is essentially created by his own head and his mm -hmm. own um, self-obsessed sort of you know. Uh, attempt to narrate his own life is d definitely takes I mean I was taking a risk that some and I think some people really just say that's too much that's too much of one person looking at what is essentially a pretty ordinary life I mean the flip side of that is I'm hoping I'm looking at an ordinary life that has enough universal elements that it will be interesting to other people and so mm -hmm. yes the, the Charles Yu the, the protagonist um, and maybe Charles Yu the author is could, could be a accused of self-absorption at times but I, I mean I really I think to make that argument is is probably to miss the point which is that Charles you hates that he's like this you know mm -hmm. and 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 hopefully in the course of the book 
Uh, I'm not going to say he learns, you know, a moral lesson or, or something about <laughs> connecting with other people or getting out of his own head. But the point of the book is that he he knows that he is he is stuck in this temporal rut of his own making because of his inability to get past himself and because of his inability to live in a way that isn't just completely in his own head. So um, it's, you know, it's maybe solipsism, but it's an attempt to um, to get a, get free from the the trap that that can be. I guess it's solipsism as an adventure. Yeah, <laughs> within a literary world. Now, one of the things that this book I think deals with is this idea of being here in the moment, and instead of living, you know, in some future that has not or may not come to life. This book, I think, really draws attention to that without pointing at it. And I think that's a really, um, uh, it's a powerful tool for you to, um, especially with the scenes with the father. And, and so talk about dialing back and forth between some of the, the more uh, chronodiegetic uh, material and then into the stuff that's, I think, very, very poignant and nostalgic. Uh, that is an interesting prose journey that you make and traverse, transverse very well. Yeah, it's. Uh, it may, I think it makes for a slightly. Um, it can make for an odd mix sometimes, mm-hmm. where you're you're you think you're getting something in one chapter, and then the very next chapter will be this sort of uh, very uh, nostalgic reminiscence about Charles and his and his father. Um, I did I did want to kind of keep the ratios of the two, you know, if not equal, sort of in, in a proportion, mm-hmm. you know, because, and, and not so much because I wanted to geek out a little bit here and then get mushy here, but because those, they're both getting at the same thing, mm-hmm. I think. You know, I, they're supposed to be, um, those those two strands of the writing are supposed to be interacting with each other so that you're thinking about the technical stuff in light of what, you then read in terms of the emotional story, and then vice versa. Um, and and so one, you know, the and it helps too that what Charles, you and his father are doing are working on a prototype time machine, so mm-hmm. that ultimately you can, um, I, I could I could write about both within one chapter instead of just sort of alternating between the two. Now, um, uh, this this book has a has a really nice plot, and I want you to talk about plotting a time travel novel like this. This is very, very complicated, I think. And, and yet, as a reader, it's a very, it's a wonderful reading experience. So talk about the, just when you sat down, I'm going to plot this time travel novel, and it's not going to be about chasing woolly mammoths. Uh, <laughs> what right. am I going to do? No, no, right. <laughs> you know, I, I, um, I think I, at first, I was like, okay, time travel. He's in a box. Um, he can go anywhere, anytime he wants. And too there, much choice. Yes, there's too many choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it, it, and I can see why time travel stories often end up in a time loop because that's a good way to constrain your story. But, mm-hmm. but, you know, the, the sort of typical loop, I think, is one where, um, well, I don't want to say that. Maybe that's too broad. But one, one thing that's been explored a lot is what if you could go back and change you know, your past or mm-hmm. affect your past negatively. And then you had to deal with the consequences. I sort of, I think I tried to sort of invert that and say, well, what if you were on the other side of that? You're the past one 
and your future guy comes out and then you you know you kill your own future essentially and now by the sort of laws of fake causality i guess that are in this book you realize oh i've got to be on the flip side of that soon so that's you know once that structure was in place it became oh okay so it's basically a time loop but he made he he got himself into this predicament as opposed to you know sort of outside forces and that was that actually lined up kind of nicely with the metaphor of this guy stuck in his own sort of in, a, in unable to move past the present moment he literally is sort of in a in a loop around the present moment you know you have so many beautiful sentences in this book and I mean, for example life is an extended dialogue with your future self about exactly how you're going to let yourself down over the coming years <laughs> this is, it's depressing isn't it? <laughs> it's kind of depressing but it's also fun and, and funny so talk about uh, just crafting these kind of sentences and I like that vision too because as you point out we are time machines every second you and you and I have just journeyed at this point 29 minutes and or 30 minutes uh, into the <laughs> into the future from when I pressed the go button and we're still moving we're still moving yeah <laughs> <laughs> um it really it was it became kind of neat to to realize that this metaphor was so flexible and I could have so much fun with it. Um, and I could, and even, even being, you know, even sentiment and probably at times verging on mushiness, mm-hmm. um, when told with, with this science fictional vocabulary took on for me anyway, new resonance. I mean, it just was like, um, it was like I put on sort of uh, these science fictional glasses and and got to look at, you know, what would be probably fairly ordinary observations about ourselves, but but look for some reason through this through through this lens they became sort of charged to me. I love that you use the the language of of science fiction and and science itself. I mean, to to charge your your emotional story and this kind of scientific vocabulary is is really, I think, compelling and and funny. Uh, when you were uh, creating this vocabulary, did you have to kind of keep track of, of what you were writing? I mean, is there a, do you have a, a lexicon that, that goes with this book? Because I think a lot of people might want to just read that lexicon to see what you had to say about all this stuff. Um, I, d- I did. At one point, I had I had a whole appendix. My uh, editor actually made me cut it. But, oh, uh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't mean to put it on him, but uh, he was right. I mean, there was probably a little too much in there. That, well, but maybe someday I'll, I'll write that and put it somewhere. Because, what, put it online. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I, 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 you know, um, for for all that I love paper books and such, occasionally a book comes along that seems like it's absolutely made to be an electronic hyperlinked book, and I think this is a, a pretty good idea. I think somebody could have a lot of fun turning this into a, a nest, a series of nested loops from which you could never escape as a reader. <laughs> you could just keep people trapped in the reading universe. <laughs> no, that's a great idea. And, and actually, my the same editor, um, he, he saw some of the same possibilities you're talking about. And in fact, um, the version that's available, not generally for the Kindle, but for the iPad, mm-hmm. um, does have some sort of audio and video, vis, visual extras and, and other links. But but I think 
we're constrained a bit by that what's uh, possible now on those devices mm-hmm. so we c- couldn't get into a, a, a recursive sort of situation <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> although that would have been fun now uh you also uh, have a lot of uh diagrams in here or a few diagrams which i i really like and did, did you create those and, and i think that gives a certain ambience to the book that I, that i i really like uh, thanks. <laughs> it was yeah in line with sort of those science fictional papers. Um, I felt like some some pseudoscience di- diagrams would also, but they they were meant to. I mean the, the the main diagram that was really key for me was the one that that shows the loop that Charles has gotten into mm-hmm. because um, it's is that a diagram you used to help you write the book? A little bit. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, it, it was. Um, I wrote that pretty early actually, and. You know, the early versions were all in pencil and just I could barely see what was going on, but I just would scribble notes. And, you know, sort of going back to the, the glossary type idea, I did it. I did want to, there were certain terms where I felt like I wanted to get them in there. So I made lots of like sort of lists of permutations of, of like made up <laughs> words I wanted to sneak in there. And I got most of them in there. You, you do have a lot of fun with all these neologisms. Um, when, when you're creating these new words, how how exactly do you go about it? I mean, is it just as a are you writing and you say, I can't think of a word to describe that. I better make one up. Or do you, <laughs> That's you it. Or, really? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> kind of, yeah. And and then it, the, but then if it doesn't sound good, then then I then I ditch it. I guess. I, so it, you put a placeholder in there and then come back and talk about revising this book. I mean, that must have seemed like itself kind of like a, a time loop. I, yeah. I, I can imagine <laughs> that you might feel you would get lost in the revisions and uh, maybe what I'm talking to is a is a grammatical construct that came out of the book. <laughs> okay, you're still somewhere right. back there type revising it for us. That's right. Um, revising was um, was painful but it was it was it it helped to have such an amazing editor because I think he saw so much of it the the first major draft that I showed him was pretty formless you know it's it didn't have much of the it didn't have other than like sort of the basic basic plot structure Mm -hmm. it didn't have the same direction had most of the same writing but it didn't have the same I guess they weren't ordered in such a way that it made that it was as as um, coherent. I think, and he he helped me kind of see how to how to structure it so that readers would actually want to get through to the end. <laughs> now you know this is titled "How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe," but I, I've got to say it doesn't seem like a science fiction novel to me, uh, and I'm wondering if you're really interested in writing a science fiction novel, either, I'm going to say this is not a science fiction novel, even though it has aspects of science fiction. I think it's much more, I would describe it more as a novel about grammar and and literature and and regret. The time travel is is there, and it's interesting, but I don't think it operates in the way a normal science fiction novel operates. Are you interested in writing uh, a novel that operates in the normal way a science fiction writer says, here's this technology, (laughs) and if they developed it in 2011, then by 2018 there'd be all these problems or great stuff would be happening? Um, I I think I'm, I think probably not, to be honest. Mm -hmm. But I, which is not to say that, I mean, I, I have a short story that is about 
you know, what if you could um, outsource uh, conscious experiences that were just bad ones, crappy ones you didn't want to have? And what if you could just basically put those into packets and, and send them off to someone else who could feel those for you? <laughs> and, and so I think, so, but even that story is ultimately about, um, you know, what, what it means to have, um, it's more of an exploration of to what extent do we already kind of do that with technology? Do mm -hmm. we, do we take the stuff, the parts of life that are either boring or painful and, and compress them and, and, you know, sort of put compartmentalize, I guess. And so I think those ideas do occur to me in a sort of high, hard sci-fi way. But mm -hmm. then when I get my hands on them, for some reason, they get all sort of like meta and literary <laughs> and for better or worse, you know, I, well, I really like the, the the literary feel of your book, and, and especially the interest in language. I, I don't think I've seen a, a novel that has quite is quite as interested in language as this one is, and, and that's an odd subject to choose for a novel. And then when you think that, you think, boy, it's odd that language should be an odd subject for a novel when that's what they're created from. <laughs> and that, of course, gets you into a loop. So talk about choosing a, a language as a subject for a novel. Yeah, I mean, there are times I wished I had it because it's like, <laughs> oh, God, I'm in over my head. And, um, you know, I'm tackling all the, you know, easy topics like language, time, memory, you know, fathers, sons, like, can't just you know, lighten up and you know write a book about ray guns and and time machines but um yeah i mean i think partly it, it comes from i uh i wanted to um it, you know it goes back to the baker book the mezzanine and mm -hmm. some of you know some of philip roth's novels i feel like are also very much um constructed you feel like you're in a space that's constructed by the narrator's voice, you know? Mm -hmm. um, his, his short novels, right? I mean, yeah. He, I, he has a, a new book out where I think that's, I think, a little bit more apparent. Um, and I, I, I haven't read it yet, but I, as I understand, it kind of draws a thread of this kind of idea of narrative space uh, between his short novels. And, and that's a really interesting observation. You know, also, uh, the, the the flip side of this is is all the genuine and, and poignant emotion that you that you get out of the situation. And I, I'm thinking, as I say, the, the the that kit that you got out of the back of the magazine. Boy, I remember when I got went wrote to the back of the magazine and and went out and sold some gift cards until I got walkie-talkie sets. Yeah. So did you ever do anything yeah. like that? Yes. <laughs> yeah, to my my parents' chagrin, I, <laughs> I sent away for stuff. And they'd get it a few months later or weeks later, and what what is this? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, when you're a kid that age, like those ads hold so much, like you know, possibility, right? Like, who is this person, and how can he send me this? And I have to get this, and there's just someone. And the addresses were always in states that were like, I don't know, they were always. You know, it would never be from like Orange County. The 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 person would be in like Nebraska always. And states and, of mind. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, talk about the the character of Charles Yu in this book, and how you as the author feel about that Charles Yu, and about um, 
this, you know, this vision of a, of a son? Uh, I, um, you're a son. Yes, I'm a son. And, uh, and, uh, I have, my name is Charles. Hughes. So, um, <laughs> you know, I think he's, um, he's somebody who is pretty, um, pretty hard on himself, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. harder on himself than I think he needs to be. Mm-hmm. And, um, someone I hope that you can root for because he even despite his you know self-absorption and in sort of like literal self-loathing in this book um he he's also somebody who's trying to um trying to make a story out of his own life and make it a, a story that in which he's not just the sole benefactor in which his parents also play a, a positive role I think yes yeah exactly and and I hope that's yeah something that makes him likable now uh, also in this I think it's it's interesting and it's it's a little bit in the background you talk about how um, Charles's parents came from an alien island you describe this as an alien island and, and this is another interesting use of uh, I think uh, a science fiction metaphor to describe a, a real life experience. Talk about that feeling of, literal, I guess, literal alienation. It, yeah, I mean, it's in a, in a book about language where, um, where language is a form of time travel mm-hmm. and, um, and uh, you know, it seemed appropriate that language could also be a, um, a barrier in terms of in, inside this universe. You know, it's, uh, if, if you can't, if, if you're not speaking your native language and you're speaking one that has all kinds of verb tenses that are different, you know, mm-hmm. um, the, I imagine these, these characters, especially the mother character, um, she can't, she, you know, in a universe where language is literally time travel, um, or, or is what powers it. If you, if you see the world through such a fundamentally different mindset than, than other people, and in the way you talk about the world or your inability to, to articulate mm-hmm. things um, using, I guess, proper grammar, you know, what would that do to sort of how you move through time and what would that do to, to how you live your life, basically? Well, if we didn't have conditional tenses, then we might never have come up with the many worlds theory. Yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> and, and then we wouldn't have, uh, I'm trying to remember the author, Dana, who wrote a book, uh, uh, had an analogy that she called the quantum hussy. Who was, who was the Good girl with, who was the girl who got all the guys in, in all the multiple universes, and I think that there's a, there's quite a bit of that uh, uh, branch and choice here, and, and I think it's, uh, you know, it's a powerful emotional pull to this, of you know what might have been. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Charles, uh, tell us what you're working on now. Um. I am working on another novel. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's very early to say, mm-hmm. and uh, it'll probably change tonight. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> so so I'll, I'll, I probably shouldn't even say anything because I'll just regret it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, if anybody has a time machine to go back and fix that regret, it's you. <laughs> I've been speaking with Charles Yu. His new novel is How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. Thank you for speaking with me, Charles. Thank you very much. 
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.